Hey, y'all, my name's Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. Uh, so excited to be with you this morning. Uh, it's, what is it, January 7th? Is that, yep. is that right? Um, so this is our first Sunday in a new year. We are uh, starting a new sermon series, and I'm really eager to get it going. We're going to be, for the foreseeable future, in the Gospel of Luke. So if you have your Bible, uh, open it up to the Gospel of Luke. Why, you might ask, Luke? Um, well, we are a Jesus-centered church, and one of the things we have felt as pastors as we've, been, as we've been praying for you is, man, we need to get back into a gospel to see Jesus face-to-face, to be in those, those, those spaces and those places where he's interacting with people, and he's revealing truth, and he's showing us who he is, and he's putting his power on display, and he's healing, um, and he's bringing hope, and he's bringing comfort, and he's bringing forgiveness, and just to, to see his heart. I mean, um, to know the kind of, of likeness that God wants to grow us in, right? Jesus was the visible image of the invisible God. Uh, he is the clearest picture of who our God is, walking as a man who can empathize with us on this earth. And so uh, I need Luke chapter 1. I have needed Luke chapter 1, and I am so eager to get into it. Let me tell you a little bit about Luke, the author. Um, he was a traveling companion, missionary companion with the apostle Paul, familiar guy who wrote a lot of books in the New Testament. Luke was a physician. And so there are things that, details, if you will, in the gospel of Luke that you don't see in Matthew, Mark, and John. And in addition, um, Luke wrote the book of Acts. So uh, he, he authors this gospel account, and then he tells the story of the early church. And when the Holy Spirit comes at Pentecost, and that the church of Christ is born, um, here's the truth. I, I don't know if you know this. Just by sheer volume, Luke is actually the most prominent author in the New Testament. He wrote and penned more words than the Apostle Paul did. And so um, he is worth giving our ears to because it's the divinely inspired word of God. Um, but he, he wasn't a, a Jewish man. Uh, he was Gentile, and uh, he, he gives us the reason why he wrote his account in the first few verses. So here we go. City Light Bennington, Luke chapter 1, verse 1. Let's dive in. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, believed to be a real person in the early church, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So church, here's why we're going to take <clears throat> the next several months to work through Luke. We need clarity. We need certainty. We need confidence in who Jesus Christ is and what he's done. Amen. What is a church without clarity and confidence in the person and work of Jesus Christ, God our Savior? Um, Jesus himself, when he's walking with some men on the road to Emmaus, he says that everything in your Old Testament, all the, the, the stories of God's power and his provision and, and everything in human history really points to the first coming of Jesus and then it will culminate in his second coming. And so I can't tell you how much I look forward to Spending time, paying attention to the countenance of Jesus, the responses and reactions of Jesus, 
the way that Jesus meets people where they are, to just see the heart of our God. Um, I look forward to sharing that with you in the months to come. Let me paint you a picture of where we are in God's story, right? We're picking up in this book of the Bible. It finds itself placed in this meta-narrative, Genesis to Revelation. If you put it chronologically, it tells a story that we find ourselves in. And the the story of God goes like this. Uh, The first 12 chapters of the very first book of the Bible in Genesis tell the origin of everything. And then in chapter 12 of Genesis, all the way to where we are in Luke, uh, the centerpiece of your Old Testament is one people group. It's, it's the Jewish people. It's the Hebrew people. It's the people of Israel. And God chooses this group to be his reflection on earth. He says, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. And you're going to be a people group that I make promises and, and covenants and vows to. Um, what was lost in Genesis chapter 3 from man's rebellion against God and all of the sin and corruption and the fall that came as a result of that, God intends to reverse. Hallelujah. And so, um, the Old Testament ends with the book of Malachi. He is the 12th of the minor prophets. And after Malachi, there is a silent period. There are 400 years of prophetic silence. And 400 years of, of no one really coming with prominence to speak on behalf of God. There's 400 years of just no voice of God. And I just want you to think about this. We've talked about this before, but the United States of America is like 248 years old. Okay, so like it would take more than 150 more years of our existence as a nation to even get close to 400 years of silence. And so Um, Imagine generations of moms and dads, the Jewish people, telling all the stories of old, just these epic stories of God's power, all the ways that he provided, all the ways that he delivered his people. And he's going to send a Messiah. He's going to send a Savior. He's going to send a king that's going to come, and he's going to be a benevolent king, and he's going to be a perfect king, and he's going to rule with righteousness and, and justice, and this king is coming. And generation after generation is sharing this, and generation after generation is passing away, and there's silence. And we get introduced, all of a sudden, to two new characters in Luke chapter 1. And it's so exciting. In verse 5, read with me. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statues of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren. And both were advanced in years. So, Zechariah and Elizabeth. Zechariah, a priest in the temple. Elizabeth, his bride. Um, She's barren. They're of old age. God is about to do something that's going to bring about John the Baptist. Now, we're going to learn more about John the Baptist and his ministry in chapter 3. But something so cool right here in the text is this. The names Zechariah and Elizabeth. This is just beautiful poetry, church. Zechariah, if you look at the original Hebrew, it's Zakar and Yah, which means God remembers. And Elizabeth's name is El and Sheva, which means promise of God. So this couple who would bring about the forerunner, the man who would pave the way for Jesus Christ, this couple, their names together really mean God remembers his 
promise. So before we even really get into anything this morning, do you feel like you're waiting on God for anything right now? You feel like you've been in waiting. You're kind of just wondering if he's going to answer that prayer. If he, 400 years do not change God's goodness and his faithfulness. 400 years does not change God's character. What a relief to put that into perspective in my life and in yours. Amen. Amen. So um, let's move about in this way. What I want to do is, uh, my burden is this. You and I are coming in this morning. It's a new year. And here is my guess. It is not unique to 2024, nor is it unique to hardly any Sunday that any of us walk into this building. I don't know what it is, but it's just the condition of our heart. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is too small. He's too small. He is not big enough, profound enough, powerful enough, worthy enough in my mind and my heart as he should be. And what's waiting on the other side of us doing what I'm going to call us to do this morning is so much blessing. It's a change of attitude. It's a change of perspective. It is a change of hope. It is a change of peace. It's a change of joy. And it comes simply by, here's the main idea, this. Behold Jesus. Behold Jesus. Look and stare at the real Jesus. Contemplate in your mind Think about, stew on, meditate on, memorize who he is and what he's done, the promises that he's fulfilled, the promises that he's made. Your life will not be the same. I am personally tired and exhausted of living a life where I continue to push Jesus to be a piece of the pie of my life. That a shot in the arm on Sunday is enough to get me through the week rather than when Jesus Christ came, he came to take your life and mine and completely flip them right side up and change everything, everything. Jesus is not just some historical figure who taught us some good moral lessons. He's not just a man who shows us kindness and mercy. He is God, and he is the Savior of the world, and he is Lord of all, and he is coming again. So for us to not spend time beholding all that Jesus is. What a waste. What a waste. We are robbing ourselves. We're we're starving ourselves at a buffet of so many amazing truths about our God. The very same God who looks at you and me with mercy and love in his eyes. And he wants relationship with us. He wants to hold and keep us. He wants us to know him with closeness and intimacy. There is nothing like that. And you know what the absent thing was for 400 years before the things we're getting ready to read in this chapter? God's presence. God's presence. 
God just being there. You know these people were beginning to ask, has he forsaken us? Does he actually intend to dwell with us forever? Because we don't see him. And the answer in Christ is a profound yes. So, this morning, um, I've titled the message, Behold Jesus, because I want us to see that much of the gap that we feel in our lives of a daily conscious awareness of God's presence and the peace and the joy that it immediately brings is a direct link to what we spend our time beholding, paying attention to, focusing on. So I want to do a little tour of two characters, just a two-part thing. The first is Mary, the mother of Jesus, and the way that she responds when the angel comes to her and declares good news, and she knows she's going to be the mother of God in the flesh. The second is Zechariah, who we were just introduced to. He has a prophecy. Mary has a song. Zechariah has a prophecy. And in both of these responses, we see models to us of faith, and we see models to us of people who before, before Jesus has even come and done anything, hadn't even been born yet, they are filled with excitement and anticipation for their lives to be completely and totally changed, for all of human history, for reality, for everything to be altered and changed forever. Oh, that we would learn from that posture, that we would learn faith, seeing what the future holds and having confidence in that and hope in that, the way that we see in Mary and Zechariah. So turn with me, Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. Here's the account of Mary. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. God saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. Man, I love this. Of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will be upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, remember her, in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. You gotta love verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Amen. Hallelujah. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here is a young girl. She's likely around 14 years of age. She's now 35. <laughs> She's poor probably uneducated, not who anyone would have guessed to be used in the master plan of God. 
And she is now faced with a scandal of pregnancy. And she has this song that she's going to sing. In Latin, it's called her Magnificat. And so she makes a 70 to 100 mile trek to go see her cousin Elizabeth. And that's where you see the classic John the Baptist leaps in his mother's womb. I always joke that I I would love for my children to be filled with the Holy Spirit before they even leave the womb. Can't say that's happened. So um, pray, pray. But this is an epic song that she composes after she's really taken in all the reality. I mean, can you imagine thoughts going through her mind as she makes a 70 to 100 mile trek to go see her? That's just a real person. She's been told by an angel that she's going to be the mom of the Messiah. And so I probably processed a few things on that walk, on that journey, probably accepted a few things. And here is her posture of worship beginning in verse 46. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Church, think about those words for a moment. My soul magnifies the Lord. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. She says, my soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior, before Jesus has come and done anything. It's all based on God's promises. It's not because he's actually moved and done anything yet. So let me ask you this question. It's 2024. You've entered into this new year. How is your soul? How's your spirit? How's that part of you? Deep, deep down, like the deepest part of you, the part that worships, the part that tunes itself to the heaven and and all the realities that are in the heavenlies, the part that would hear God's voice if he were speaking, the part that comes alive when you're singing that song and and the lyrics actually are meaningful and personal to you. How is your soul and your spirit right now? Are you rejoicing in the Lord despite him answering your prayer the way that you want him to? I love, I love the way that she gets practical and she says, my soul magnifies the Lord. Here's what I'm guessing right now, okay? Because I'm a human being just like you. My guess is that your soul is cluttered. My guess is that you are not sitting here saying, yes, my spirit rejoices in the Lord with all purity, with all clarity and We're human beings, and life is hard. And it's easy for us to get sidetracked and for us to allow a lot of things to come in and and clutter, the things that need to be fully resolved and in focus. And my guess is if you're anything like me, your heart is not fixed today on eternity. It's not thinking about forever with God. Your heart and your mind right now are focused on something that might be happening today, something that might be happening physically in your body, something that might be happening with a loved one, uh, something at work, something with your children, something with the spouse sitting next to you. Are we going to figure it out? Your mind and your heart, like mine, are so easily persuaded to pull away from the very things that they need. 
And there is no amount of New Year's resolutions. There is no amount of um, spiritual disciplines in and of themselves that are going to bring the kind of solution and the kind of peace and the kind of way forward that we need. There is nothing that compares to the presence of a person, the presence of God. And so, if I could get practical, here is kind of my, my challenge. And this comes from just knowing many of you and knowing my life and knowing our context. You cannot take a busy, overwhelmed, stressful mind and life and just somehow slap the presence of Jesus on the margin of that and it solves anything, right? None of us have, have benefited from, from, from that. Um, it doesn't do anything but for maybe a moment, and then everything comes crashing back in. Right now, there is maybe perhaps no space in your life for the good news of Jesus. Perhaps right now there's no margin in your life for the personal presence and guidance and friendship and closeness that's afforded to us through the work of Jesus. Perhaps right now, that's the thing that we need most. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to meddle here for a moment, okay? You, you and I, we can't point at things in our life that we have agreed to, things that we've signed up for, things that we are willingly paying for, things that we have given our yes to, and blame them for the reason that we don't have time spent personally and privately with God. We, we can't point at our busyness and, and the things in our life that we are victims of that pull us away from the only thing we actually need. And so my plea in this new year is there are going to be a lot of influences and a lot of things in your life that are pulling you away from the one thing you actually need. There will be no shortage today, not 2024, today, like after you leave here today, no shortage of forces and powers that be in your life that will try to take your attention and snatch your eyes off of beholding the one thing that you need to behold, and it's Jesus. There will be no shortage of things that will come and, and say, it was, it's like this, we had a, we had a seek night on Thursday night, and, and, and Roy was up here, and he was talking about how if we, if we fix our attention on uh, the characters of the shows that we keep streaming, we're probably going to become like those characters. If, if we keep fixing our attention on, on what that sports analyst is, is saying, we're probably going to become like that sports analyst, and we're going to become like that newscaster that has this take on this political issue, and, and if we're reading this book, and we're going to become like that fictional character who's the hero, and Jesus is the hero. That's right. We don't have the answers. Jesus does. And what would happen? What would happen if we would magnify the Lord in our lives? What if that's your word for 2024? Magnify. What if that's what we choose to do at whatever cost this year? My mind will think about Jesus, dwell on Jesus. I will pick this up and read about Jesus. I'll observe what Jesus says, what Jesus does, how Jesus answers. We have to do something. We have to start somewhere. 
here's the way I've heard it said, revelation, right? Hearing from God, feeling close to him, comes with repetition. It does. So, like the vast majority of ways that we hear from God comes from repetition in prayer and in this. And we are so busy coming up with other ways to encounter him. So busy coming up with new books that we could read. There's a new Christian literature author that's, you know, hitting the market with this thing and this way. To, and, and at the end of the day, it comes back to one thing. Are we spending time with him, reading his word, and talking to him? In his presence, we will be changed. It will do something within us. If we behold Jesus, if we behold his miracles and the power that he pours out, if we behold how he moves toward the outcast and the outsider, if we behold how he speaks with authority and with truth and he's unwavering, if we, if we behold his merciful hand and his grace and his compassion, if we, if we behold the way that Jesus stands up and shouts down man-made religiosity and tradition, if we behold, just in the gospel of Luke, the way that Jesus conquers our enemies, Satan, sin in our heart, and death itself, if we behold his strength and his sacrifice and, and the way that he changes the human heart, from within, we will not stay the same. If we behold his, his healing and his comforting hand, we will not be the same. We will change from within. It is in his likeness that God intends to transform us. It's not just principles for daily living. It is that Christ himself would make his home within us and that his spirit would begin to bear his fruit in us. That me, as a man, that I can begin to think like Jesus, I can begin to see and perceive nothing according to the flesh, but see it spiritually like Jesus. It's that I can begin to feel what Jesus feels. It's that I can begin to do what Jesus does. And I love this. I love the closeness that Mary anticipates with the Lord. In verse 47, she sings that he is God, my Savior. In verse 48, she sings, he took notice of me. Verse 49, she sings, he has done great things for me. City Light, whoever you are, some of you I don't know, God wants it to be personal. He wants it to be personal. He doesn't need you to ride on the coattails of mom and dad anymore. He doesn't need you to ride on the coattails of the tradition of your family. He doesn't need you to ride on the coattails of popular Christian music or that pastor on YouTube that you really like. He desires personal relationship with you. Guess what I do as a preacher? Remind you of that every single time I'm up here. That's all I do. And our church is filled with people who have accepted God not changing who they are pretending to be, but changing who they really are. There are two types of people in our church. 
There are people here today who are so stuck in our ways and so convinced that we cannot change or alter the way we've been doing things, the way we've been thinking about, the way we've been speaking, whatever, whatever it looks like. And, and the older we get, it feels like the more entrenched we kind of get. You can't teach an old dog new tricks. False. False. Because at the same time, there are a multitude of people in this room of every age, people in their 60s, 70s, 80s, who say, Jesus has changed me. He has changed the way I think. He's changed the way I see. He's changed the way I've treated him or her, the way I've talked to them. He's changed the emotions that enslaved me. I'm not who I once was because Emmanuel, God with us, and it has become personal. This year, will you actually, finally, please, Make your relationship with God not based on a church and a building and songs that we sing and a place that we come and a guy standing up here talking to you. Meet with God. Have a relationship with God. That is what Jesus came to afford for you. You can have a daily conscious awareness of his presence. And man, to live short of that so sad. It's sad. It should burden us, and we should feel dissatisfied with anything short of that. So, that was Mary's song. <laughs> um, I now want to point you to Zechariah's prophecy, part two, okay? Let's move to Luke chapter one, starting in verse 67, Okay? John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit, and he prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and he has redeemed his people. And he's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. What I want to do to close our time is I want to point out three amazing things just about who Jesus is that are captured in Zechariah's prophecy. And the first is this. Jesus is king. 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 Everything below his feet, all power, all authority, ruling and reigning, right now his kingdom is here. It's already here. He brought it with him. And it is increasing across the globe as people turn from their life of sin and bow their knee and trust in Jesus. His rule and his reign, wherever God gets his way, is where the kingdom of God is. And Jesus is the king we need. Like, I think Zechariah probably felt it maybe a little bit more than we do, maybe not. At last, someone is coming to right all the wrongs. Are we tired? Someone is coming to make all things new. Someone is coming to take all the evil and bring justice upon it. Someone is coming to establish a kingdom that is good and only good. Someone is coming to be a king who is both all-powerful and all-generous and benevolent. A king who brings prosperity and flourishing and thriving and let me tell you this much, a king who is so much better at leading my life and yours than we are, yeah. 
Zechariah knew something of this. This king was coming, and he would bring a rule and a reign that all of humanity is desperate for. Jesus is king. If you keep going, in verse 72, he says, to show the mercy, huge word, promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. God made promises to the people of Israel, and through extension, the kingdom of God would go out to the Gentile world. And it would reach us today, and it would declare that Jesus is mercy. Mercy. And what I want to do right now is I just want to tap into the heart of our God. That word, mercy, it, it can mean something of the internal organs and a, a stomach churning, something where you feel like your stomach drops because you're looking at the state or the lot of someone else and you're so moved to do something about it. Can we celebrate this morning that God looked at us in all of our mess, our sin, our rebellion, our rivaling of him and wanting to be the God of our own life. And he was moved in mercy to do something about it. We were stuck, y'all. We didn't have the means to earn ourselves forgiveness for all the wrong that we've done, all the sick motives of our heart, the selfishness, the pride. We didn't have a way to resolve that and to have a clean slate and to be made whole before God. And so he sent Jesus. And Jesus is a picture of God's internal organs churning because he doesn't want the lot that we've chosen for us. He wants something so much more. He wants a vision for our lives that's his, not ours. He looks at us and says, I want so much better for you. I want so much more for you. I rejoice that there are people sitting in these seats this morning. I think of specific people. I won't look at you. You've given your life to Jesus, and right before my eyes, I have seen the satisfaction of God is mindful of me. God cares about me. God is willing to forgive the mess that I've been in. God's willing to wipe clean the slate of my sin. God is willing to invite me into a perfect relationship with him. No condemnation no shame, no guilt. God is willing to lift my burdens, some of which I've caused because he loves me. Yes, I will take that offer. (laughs) I will place my faith in Jesus. God, I'll walk with you. I'll trust you because you are merciful to me. And that never changes. Did you show up this morning to church? Did you walk into 2024 rejoicing in God's mercy. Go to verse 76. Thank you, Justin. Jesus is light. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby 
the sunrise. Ooh, shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. John 8, 12, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Do you know what darkness is in scripture? Darkness can mean a lot of things in scripture. It's used to describe ignorance. It's used to describe blindness. It's, it's used to describe what is hidden. It's used to describe what is error. It's also used to describe hopelessness and things in moral categories like sin and, and wickedness and the presence of Satan. It is used to describe the absence of the presence of God. And our lot in life is that when we were born, we were born into that darkness. And God's longing all of our life is that we would walk in the light with him. We need to see the light of the presence of God in our hearts and our minds. The truth that it brings that dispels lies, like we see food and water. We need to crave it. We need to want to feel like we can't function each day without it. What a blessing that would bring. Uh, here's how I want to close. As I was um, writing this and preparing this, my, my heart became burdened for the person here in the room who is not yet a Christian. You've, you've not bowed your knee to Jesus. You've not turned from sin. You've not asked for his forgiveness. You've not wanted him to lead your life. Here's my appeal to you. I'm so glad you're here and I long for you to stick around and, and pay attention and observe the things we discover in this account of Jesus. Because if you have skepticism, if you want to answer the question, who the heck is Jesus Christ? There's a lot of things that people say in the media about him. I have a professor that said this about him. I, I, I've got neighbors who think this about him. There's a person on YouTube and, and on X and on whatever that says this about him. Do yourself, please do yourself the service of looking God in the face and seeing who he really is and not let somebody else do your thinking for you. This is what happened to me in college. I came face to face with God and I read my Bible. Novel idea. And as I read, my Bible knew me. The Jesus I met in there knew Glenn, knew what was going on here and here, made sense of the world around me, made sense of everything. My plea, my earnest plea, is that you would perhaps this spring, this year, this 2024, you would, you would let go of Christianity as a set of ideas. You would let go of Christianity as a, um, a set of, uh, of moral principles or a belief system. You, you would let go of Christianity as a, a tradition or, or a religion that people participate in, and you would see the who of Christianity. You would see what is at the heart of Christianity and it is the person who is its namesake, Christ, Jesus. Um, I wanna read, finally, going back to Mary's song to close us this morning. Something that I, I hope encourages us to enter into this new year with one thing and that is humility. Humility enough 
to be in awe of Jesus, to behold Jesus, to discipline ourselves, to see Jesus. Here's what Mary says, starting in verse 50. I wanna pray this over you. So if you would bow your head, close your eyes. Here's what I wanna pray over you. Take the heart of Mary here. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He's brought down the mighty from their thrones. And listen to this. He has exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry. Are you hungry? With good things. And the rich, people who don't need anything, he's sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. Jesus Yeshua, we behold you. You are the one who, when it is all said and done, will have hair like wool and eyes like fire. You will be the one pictured as a lamb who was slain. You will be the one, Jesus, that the angels surround and cry, holy, holy, holy. You are the one, Jesus, to whom all glory, blessing, honor, and power belong forever and ever. May our lives align under you, Lord Jesus. We ask this in your name, and we anticipate the blessing that will come as a result. Amen.